Welcome to Blind Date with a Book, the podcast where three literary matchmakers set you up with your next great read using only dating app questions like, do you consider yourself a romantic? What is your dream Saturday? If tattoos only lasted one year, what would you get? What's your go-to karaoke song? This is Blind Date with a Book. Prepare to fall in love. Welcome to Blind Date with a Book. I'm Kristen Evans, and today we're talking with Adrienne Selt, a novelist who writes about the many ways women create and navigate artistic lives. Before we dive into her new novel, I'd like to quickly tell you about her first two. The Daughters, which won the 2015 Penn Southwest Book Award in Fiction, is about an opera singer struggling under a curse. Rendered voiceless after the birth of her daughter, the singer must confront her own lineage, which is steeped in myth and myth-making. Self's second novel, Invitation to a Bonfire, is an exquisitely structured literary thriller about a young orphan who falls for the writer Leo Orloff, a fictional avatar for Vladimir Nabokov, the writer of Lolita. Their affair takes many shocking twists and turns, so it's no wonder that the television network AMC recently greenlit an adaptation of the novel into a series. Adrian's new novel, End of the World House, begins in a world that's a little bit worse off from ours, if you can imagine. <laughs> there have been armed conflicts that reach the United States, and climate change has made things unstable for everyone. In the midst of this bleak setting, two best friends, Bertie and Kate, attempt to revive their friendship by taking a trip to Paris. But when they step into the Louvre for a private tour, they're caught in a time loop. Each morning, Bertie wakes up to a slightly altered reality in which her relationship with Kate is better, worse, or sometimes non-existent. Selt examines the nature of female friendship and what it takes to sustain one over a long period of time, even as she delves into anxieties about moving up, selling out, and moving on. Adrienne, welcome to Blind Date with a Book. I really enjoyed End of the World House. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and also to hear such like wonderful, succinct descriptions of my books that I didn't have to come up with. <laughs> well, I read them all and loved them all, so it was very easy to do. <laughs> Delightful. Uh, do you have a couple pages that you could give us to, to set the, the tone? I do. I'm going to just read from the very beginning because um, as you have noted, it does involve time loops. So it can be hard to just dive into the middle anywhere. <laughs> um, so I'll just read a little bit from the beginning. Great. By the time they reached the Louvre, Bertie and Kate were nearly running. It wasn't unusual for their walks to turn into unplanned races. Both were in the habit of strolling a half step in front of people, and when they were together, this could become a problem. First, Bertie would move in front of Kate, then Kate would pick up her pace to match Bertie's, and so on and so forth until they looked at each other and broke into a sprint. It had been that way since they were 15, that is, some 15 years ago, and on ordinary days they both embraced it, competing to reach an imaginary finish line, celebrating whoever won. But today, despite wanting to arrive at the museum on time, their mutual fear of looking un-French was helping them to approach moderation. At the end of the Rue de Rivoli, they slowed down and used each other as mirrors to readjust their outfits. A tug of the shirt when Kate lifted her eyebrow, and a twist of the skirt when Bertie sucked her teeth. The morning was hazy, with a fog that wasn't quite willing to resolve into rain, but was heavy enough to sit on the women's hair and dampen their jackets. Kate reached into her bag for an actual mirror, which she used to apply a fresh layer of lipstick. They'd come to the museum at the invitation of a man Kate had met the night before in a bar, and she claimed not to have decided yet whether she wanted to impress him. What are your priorities art-wise, Bertie asked. She had a handkerchief around her neck, meant to look chic, but also useful as a breathing filter when they passed through areas still smoky from the last round of bombs. The tracking app they had poured over on the plane attributed responsibility to a terrorist faction from the suburbs, who'd arrived via commuter rail wearing innocuous clothes and backpacks with gunpowder sewn into the lining. Now, Bertie shifted the knot of her handkerchief back to the side into its more fashionable position. Do you want to hear something dumb? I kind of want to see the Mona Lisa. 
That's not dumb, said Kate. Everyone wants to see the Mona Lisa. I mean, that's why it's dumb. Usually it's surrounded by a huge crowd, like hundreds of tourists all crammed around this tiny painting, which is probably only an okay painting, and which they only like because it's famous. That was so great. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, it is funny because the Mona Lisa is a very small painting, and people it's are so always tiny. crowded around it. Yeah, I actually went to Paris um, to do some recon for this novel. I had actually already... I think I'd already written at least a full draft, but uh, mm. it's a really great excuse to to go to Paris. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I I went. I spent an entire. I told my husband that we were going to spend the entire day at the Louvre, and that he could not interrupt me, and that we had to see the Mona Lisa, but we didn't have to linger. And we actually got there early enough that we got a pretty good view. But within you know ten seconds, the entire room fills, mm-hmm. and it's just it's a madhouse. Everybody is taking pictures. They can't even really see it. It's not clear to me why it's so delightful, but it's, you know, it's a bucket list thing. People just say they have to see the Mona Lisa. Absolutely. And it is kind of a bucket list thing for Bertie as you, as you read. Um, And one thing that I was struck by hearing you read is how well you establish their friendship right at the beginning of the novel, how there's that competitive edge to the way that they race one another, to how they kind of check uh, their appearance uh, by looking at one another and their reactions um, to their friend's appearance. And this is your first book that really focuses in a deep way on the challenges and joys of female friendship. And I was thinking how this is still not a kind of relationship we see centered very often in fiction, even though there are novels like Elena Fronte's My Brilliant Friend or Sally Rooney's Conversation with Friends that have become very popular over the last decade. So I was wondering, what was it about female friendship in general, or maybe about Bertie and Kate's relationship in particular that you were drawn to exploring in this book? Well, I am very devoted to my friends. Um, I, Probably some of Bertie's darker, more clingy tendencies come directly from me. <laughs> um, like I've always told my friends that I, I wish I could just keep them in my pocket and carry them around with me wherever I go, mm-hmm. which is, of course, uh, neither desirable nor possible <laughs> for, for most people. But that that was there. There's a certain push and pull to friendship in. A, in the modern world, especially, that was really interesting to me because I think that we do we do develop such close bonds and they are so structural and important in our lives. But at the same time, most people don't prioritize them in, in a structural way. Um, mm-hmm. If there are other things that that we need to do, like move for a job or move for a relationship or move for family we still will do those things at the expense of our friendships. And that has always been really hard for me, um, even though I do it too. It's not like I'm immune to that. So I wanted to look at the ways that that can be just as devastating as a romantic relationship. You know, the loss of a friendship can almost be more identity destroying <laughs> than the loss of a romantic pairing. Mm. And you alluded to Birdie's darker qualities and also to an impending move, which um, both are figure very imp- important uh, to the plot of this novel. But could you talk a little bit more about the push and pull uh, between Birdie and Kate in particular and how it plays out in the book? Yeah. So um, I would say that Kate is more of a forward looking character. You know, she's happy to to move on she's eager to do and see all of the possible things for her to do and see in the world Mm -hmm. whereas Bertie um is kind of emblematic of the book's larger theme of I mean I call it stuckness I guess you could call it inertia but which is playing out across so many parts of her life I mean she is very devoted to Kate and to their relationship and she is in this job that she doesn't like that much um, at, a, at a tech company in the Bay Area, but that is incredibly comfortable and comforting even. Um, and she is she she sort of plays out social problems <laughs> that we all often play out in terms of being sort of unaware of 
I don't know, racial dynamics, socioeconomic dynamics, knowing that she's kind of part of the problem, but not quite able to fix it um, because there are just so many problems in the world that she is facing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then, of course, the larger stuckness of them in the Louvre. So, yeah, I mean, so I think that becomes a tension where Bertie actually needs Kate a little bit more than Kate needs Bertie. And they're both aware of it, but not quite able to talk about it or willing to talk about it because it doesn't mean they don't love each other. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that Kate doesn't love Bertie just as much as she loves Kate. And and that becomes the, the unspokenness of that uh, and becomes a spokenness that is really like fracturing for them. Yeah, it's a devastating sort of trajectory that they take while they're the while they're stuck in the time loop. But it's interesting that you bring up this idea of stuckness as it's related to Birdie. And we have sort of touched on the idea of the time loop, but that is something that I was thinking about in writing a time loop novel. There there is kind of a risk that you take in writing a book about repetition, I think, and that you could <laughs> get stuck in the sameness or the sameness of the of the loop could become boring which never happens in end of the world house you <laughs> create a lot yes, of mystery you. <laughs> you create a lot of mystery and a lot of forward momentum so i was wondering how well maybe we can start with time why time loops and then maybe we could move to what's it like to deal with the structural demands of a, a time loop novel sure well for why time loops i think for, in, in one way, it was it was just the image that came to me first was these two friends in the museum living the same day, perhaps a, a day that sort of stranges itself over over the course of the repetitions. And that was just I, I was thinking about how much I often desire to be stuck with somebody I love in the mm-hmm. same place, um, like the the TV shows and books that are often the the fondest to my heart are the ones like something like parks and recreation say where people are end up sort of stuck on a weird team together and have to make the best of it and, you know, become a a family. Um, And, and so I I wanted the opportunity to explore that um, through, through this friendship and through the vehicle of that repetition, not least because Kate is actually partially, partially based on a friend of mine, um, from high school, who knows about it? I'm not being a bad art friend, I promise. <laughs> um, and also all her bad qualities come from me. So it, in a one way, I expressed this to her recently, and then I immediately burst into tears. Writing the book was an opportunity to spend time with her in a way that I don't get to. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, stuckness as a concept became thematically com- vital to the book, because it is looking at a a variety of different inertias that we get trapped in as human beings. Um, You know, the inability to break out of problematic social structures, the inability to remove the the, the sort of hamster wheel feeling of having a day job and going to it and having every day be fundamentally the same to the degree that you almost can't tell the difference Um, or being sort of codependent with a friend or with a partner or, looking at the way that uh, art is popularized is, is a kind of weird stuckness of its own. Like the Mona Lisa we were discussing once Mm -hmm. something gets a a certain amount of momentum, it becomes stuck in the public mind and people end up loving it. And I think that that love is still real. I mean, as Birdie expresses, she even is excited to see the Mona Lisa, even though she's kind of reluctant about it um, because Mm -hmm. she's an art snob. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. But so, so there are all of these different ways that we get trapped in things. Um, and I think that we, like, it, it seems one thing that I, that was important to me is the way that, that, that feeling of being stuck or trapped is on one hand, a you know, a scary, bad thing, certainly if you're trapped in a time loop. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, it's something that we can kind of fall in love with. Like hmm. if, if think about the way that if you're on a long car trip, um, or any, you know, any kind of trip, you, you're sort of dying to get out of the car the whole time. It's like, oh, I'm just in the, in the same place. I'm seeing the same things. I'm doing the same things. I'm having the same conversations. But when you get to the end, there's a minute where you don't want to get out of the car because the transition can be harder or more painful than just staying in the, the place that you know. 
Um, and, and that's a real feeling too. And it's like, it, it, it's very meaningful and motivating to a lot of people, including me sometimes. Um, so that was, I, I wanted that combination of feelings to be present in the narrative. And then, so you asked also about the challenges uh, and the possibility of repetition getting boring. I definitely wanted it not to be boring for the reader. And so one of mm-hmm. my goals was that it would always feel the, the forward movement of the characters and the, the pro- their progression as people would always be um, at the forefront and would be something that I was looking to highlight even while the, even in the moments when the narrative itself is repeating, mm-hmm. um, which is hard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, absolutely. <laughs> and it's one of the reasons why um, without spoiling too much, there's a, there's a major turn about halfway through the novel and which doesn't eliminate the time loop factor, but does sort of weird it up mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and made it all that, that decision was really important to me because it allowed me to open up the narrative and go to physically different locations and explore more of Bertie's life in, in the tech world and in Silicon Valley. And just like all of these different facets of, of her and her, um, her friendship with Kate, even though, there are moments where Kate is not there, um, and and yet that made like that 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 made it harder to sort of balance how much was explained versus not explained. Um, so I ended up feeling like the mimesis of of that theme a lot because in revisions I'd be like, okay, I'm I'm revising the same thing again. Wow. <laughs> Uh, well, you. I wondered if you had any kind of tricks for or rules for yourself to make sure you were always kind of noting any any differences or uh, keeping track of that forward momentum. Like one thing I noticed was that the weather was usually different when she woke up again. Mm-hmm. Um, but what kind of tools did you draw on to to find those differences? Well, one thing was just that, at least in the second chapter, like we don't actually start at the same exact point that Bertie mm-hmm. and Kate start from. Mm-hmm. So even though they're living the morning over again that we presumably have seen in chapter one, um, because we start the chapter a little bit earlier, that gives it a feeling of freshness, which was totally a, a trick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, the, the there were I, I definitely chose signposts for myself. Like there was the weather, there was like the the taste of some kind of metal. Uh, there mm-hmm. were, were a select group of people in the Corps Napoleon where, mm-hmm. where they enter into the Louvre who are similar and recognizable, but different. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of those groups of people kind of leads you into the Louvre and sort of reoccurs from the vantage point of the Louvre in a creepy way that I won't spoil. Um <laughs> So, so there were a lot of things like that. I would say that as I was drafting the book, it was more uh, intuitive. Um, and then I had to think about how those elements had a through line throughout the book. Mm-hmm. Like there, there's one particular thing with a character named Dylan that I wrote into an early draft of the book and then had to, it took me like three or four more revisions before I figured out how to explain it to my satisfaction. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Even though I knew, I knew intuitively that it was a correct, it was correct and it would work with the, with the sort of speculative world of the book, but I had to hammer out how. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. We can talk about that offline. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to know more. Um, Well, let's talk about Dylan briefly because he is kind of the boyfriend figure in in the book. Uh, So even though the book centers on Bertie and Kate's friendship, there is this other kind of romantic relationship happening uh, in various ways in in the various time loops. How would you describe Dylan? I would describe Dylan as um, a white guy every man. Yeah. Um, actually, um, I as I was revising the book, one of the ways that I kept myself sort of kept my hand in when I was feeling burned out was I would just illustrate little pieces of it. Mm. And I so I have pictures that I've drawn of Bertie and Kate and Dylan. And my niece was just visiting and saw one of the pictures of Dylan up on my bulletin board. And she said, he just sort of looks like a guy. 
Um, and it, like, if there's a thesis of Dylan, that's kind of it is that he's like this guy who is in some ways, certainly on the surface, perfectly serviceable. Um, and like completely the kind of person who once you get to know them individually, you can be in love with because of their particularities and because of your experiences with them. Um, and because some of his intentions are in fact good. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But he is also definitely one form of stuckness for Bertie. Uh, a few forms, actually. <laughs> and yeah, so he he also is emblematic of some of the ways that people, I will say in this case, certain tech men, but it doesn't have to be men, it could be any gender of person, um, can, can get can fall in love with their own form of power. And he, he also falls in love with a form of his own stuckness, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting to bring this up in the context of Silicon Valley in particular, because it does relate to the, the plot. Um, Silicon Valley in general is kind of a bad actor in the book, even though it provides Birdie, who works at a, a tech giant, some amount of financial stability. Um, but so, so technology also provides, I guess I would say, like one answer about why the time loops are happening and how to potentially break out of them. Was it important to you to have a potential answer to the te- to the time loop? Um, yes. Versus I, just having them be magical. Totally. Yeah. Well, first of all, I definitely agree. And this is, as people will discover, related to the answer to that question, Dylan is... Dylan is connected to the tech world's uh, bad actor status. He's kind of, in, in his particular form of sinister ordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was important to me both. So in terms of what I said earlier about there being um, forward momentum, clear forward momentum for the characters, even when they're stuck in a repetition, his presence and the, the one or many answers to the, to the time loop is is a form of that it's I, I wanted there to be an explanation that was palpable but not necessarily definitive um mm-hmm. so there I, I think that there is a way that it is answered like I, that there is a clear answer that is not that you don't have to agree is the right one <laughs> like I think right. that there it's it, it was important to me that it it'd be clear enough that people not feel confused and frustrated but that they're also be uh that it be open to debate because i think that has to do not only with the fact that it is in a certain sense magic but also that um the people are willing in in the tech world are willing to manipulate forces beyond their control uh like and beyond maybe their actual understanding and that they will be a little bit more self-confident about what they're doing than they actually deserve to be um, and so I want I wanted that to be a tie-in, um, but I also because it is a time loop because it is sort of a multiverse. Um, I it, there there's a lot going on here in terms of iteration of of identity mm-hmm. of person mm-hmm. of of potential of you know of your futures of your choices, and I think that and that is also sort of baked into the explanations of the time loop, as is the fact that we just like can't really control or predict what is happening or why, even though we try to the best of our abilities to do so. As we said, Birdie is a cartoonist and she is really struggling with that sort of day job, creative ambition divide that many people struggle with. Is there a particular reason that you decided to give Birdie this job, this talent, uh, this particular set of career anxieties? Um, Well, I mean, so I am also a cartoonist, um, Mm -hmm. although I would say that in my mind, Birdie's better at it than me (laughs) (laughs) because she's classically trained as a painter (laughs) and Mm -hmm. I am not. So, I mean, in in one way, it was just, I'm, I'm always interested in everything I write with how one forms one's sense of self, especially artist and artistic sense of self, mm-hmm. um, and what the tension is between allowing oneself to live comfortably, which might come through the form of a day job, and and one's ambitions as an artist, and how easy it is to to, to let those be subsumed 
beneath the needs of the day to day. But also it was important for Bertie to be an artist and especially a visual artist in this case, because I wanted her, I wanted that to be an avenue for her to have and explore a frustration um, or, or just like a, I don't know, a cynicism or a sense of curiosity, like maybe cynical curiosity about how the gravity of attention in the art world focuses our focuses the opinions of the entire world around a few different artists or, you know, pieces of art rather when, when there is this whole universe of art out there that is often ignored. I have one of the ways into this book for me. And one of the, one of the things that I found intuitively important and sort of spiritually important, uh, which may or may not even matter to a reader uh, is that there are elements of it that come from my life. it's not an autobiography by any means. Everything that is real is like distorted, not mm-hmm. least because of the fact that it's a time loop and that all of the characters are inventions. Um, but the because there is that multiverse element, I liked to feel like I was connected with Birdie in this sort of like spun out much more distantly than anything that we see in the book way that like in some ways she and I are possibilities for one another. Although, you know, so so is Kate. So, mm-hmm. so are Kate and I. Um, and so giving her something that was that is precious to me was another way of just making making that connection. Oh, I love that. And I'm glad that you brought up that you draw cartoons as well, these really wonderful comics, mostly featuring animals, right? Do you ever draw people in the cartoons that you publish online? Not for Love Among the Lambreys. That's my webcomic and it's all animals. Okay. <laughs> um, which just sort of started out as, you know, you, you make a choice and then you stick to it. That's the theme of that comic. But I do draw people, just not in that, just not in that setting. Gotcha. And your animals are often expressing something existential, like fear or anxiety or love or hope. Um, how long have you been drawing cartoons? I've been drawing that particular cartoon since 2011. I think I started drawing it in grad school um, originally because I was in a postmodernism class and we had been assigned to draw, like do some sort of artistic project that was non like not purely narrative. Um, and then I just enjoyed it so much that I wanted to keep doing it. And it was a way of making a form of art that was sort of outside of my clear professional sphere in the sense that like I didn't have to workshop it and I didn't have to ask anyone's opinion of it before I put it out into the world which was really restful when you're workshopping all the time yes absolutely (laughs) um but I actually had drawn a a version of this comic like a proto version in college when I found out that my college paper would pay anyone $20 a strip to draw a cartoon (laughs) yeah And so I drew like a much, uh, well, I say that it's much worse, but it actually, I, I went back and I looked at the archives at some point and some of them were like pretty on point for a, for a comic that I would still draw today to the degree that I redrew a couple of them and posted them. So I've been, I, I've always, I've loved that, like the intersection of the animal and the human world and the kind of estrangement that you, uh, that you achieve by giving an animal something ordinary to do. There is a set that I've done two or three of where there's a couple of dogs um, or like a troop of dogs who one of them is their captain essentially. And the one that I really like that I think of a lot is their, the captain's log where they're sitting on the beach and the, the, the captain dog starts to chuckle and his Lieutenant asks him why he's chuckling. And then they get hit by this giant wave and he says, something to the effect of like, I think it's funny that people think that death is real when really we're all just a bunch of irreducible particles. <laughs> yes, that's a very typical <laughs> Adrian Sell cartoon. But they're, they're wonderful. I just love that one. <laughs> I think it's underappreciated. <laughs> well, it's interesting to hear about um, your experiences with art and why you turn to it. And also, of course, art becomes such an important way for Bertie and Kate to communicate. And it actually takes on a, a lot of different meanings throughout the novel. You know, Bertie's kind of struggling to express herself or follow through on her graphic novel in the beginning. Like you said, they become 
her artwork kind of becomes a signpost in the time loop at a certain point. And then at the end of the novel, it's kind of returned to Bertie as an apology. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about using art in this way or embedding art in this way in, in your novel. Was there something that you wanted to say in particular about the importance of art uh, or, or was it just something that emerged, a theme that emerged as you were writing? I mean, in terms of its connection to the friendship, it was definitely, it was both intentional and evolving as I Mm -hmm. think probably most themes and motifs end up being um, when you're writing a, a whole book, but the way that it, that it that it gets expressed in terms of Bertie and Kate's friendship and like their plans and the uh, that that was um, the way that it evolves later in the novel becomes sort of um, part of Bertie's quest, if you will. That's how mm-hmm, I thought of mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. Um, and and also her her connection to Kate. So it becomes a vital window, I guess, into this other part of her life that she no longer has access to. And it's like a, a desperate way of retaining a connection that is almost subconscious to her at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I think I said earlier that I had talked recently to my friend who Kate was partially based on. I was also thinking about it in that way as, as a connection to, to that person. Um, and I think that it, I, I always have this sort of uncanny sense of writing while I'm doing it that I guess some people talk about inspiration as like a gift from the gods. Um, and I think of it, like I said, just now more, more as like a window to an alternate universe. So it's almost when, when I'm really in the flow state and it's going really well, it feels like I'm transcribing something. And I guess I just, maybe this speaks to my cosmology <laughs> more than anything else, but like, I, I don't so much attribute that as to, to a God, you know, giving me this transcription as so much as me accessing something that was always there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is also a way of accessing something within myself that was always there that I didn't, didn't know about or wouldn't have known how to name in any other way. And, and in, in a very real sense for me, like that's why I prefer fiction to nonfiction because it feels like I'm able to be more honest or like differently honest and more interestingly honest about myself and about the world as I access it through this kind of, through the openness that fiction allows than I would ever be able to be by just trying to report the world as I see it. Ugh, and that is why art is important and that's why art's important (laughs) Uh, um okay um one of the things that surprised me most about this book and I know we had talked about this a little bit offline is that it's really different stylistically from your first two novels so I was wondering what kinds of relationships you see between your work and what did you want to do differently in end of the world house Definitely End of the World House, it was very intentional that it would be a more contemporary feeling novel. Um, Mm -hmm. That was something that I felt like would be an interesting challenge to me. Because The Daughters is partially set in the contemporary world, but it's this very heightened contemporary world because Mm -hmm. it comes through Lulu's perspective and she's an opera singer and she's just like a very dramatic person. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, she's been influenced her entire life by her grandmother's stories which are very fairy tale Um, Mm mythology-esque and then Invitation to a Bonfire is a you know historical novel and also deeply inflected with Nabokov speech (laughs) and so which is a, a natural mode of writing for me because I also am intentionally so very much a stylist I love beautiful language. And that's an important part of, of literature to me. So yeah, so in that way, it was a it was a leap, it was different. Um, I think that you can still feel the hallmarks of my voice across all three books. But something that's always the same, I mean, that's really across everything that I've written is this interest that I have in identity and how for an artist, it the, the sort of fraught, vexed relationship that an artist has to their art. Um, and and its role in their life, which is going to be 
for the better or for the worse at different points, um, especially depending on how they feel about how it connects to their ambition in the material world. Um, and, you know, Lulu is a successful artist. So is Leo Orlov in um, in Invitation to a Bonfire. And Bertie is, is a more mid medium like she's she's still aspiring mm-hmm, <laughs> let's say mm-hmm. for the most part uh even though i w- she she may very well be as accomplished as many of them it's just that her work has been channeled you know through the through the lens of the corporate world where she's drawing this uh av- dinosaur avatar for the tech company she works at over and over and over again and she's probably exquisite at that <laughs> but mm-hmm. she just doesn't you know she's able to do it fluidly fluently like intuitively but that's not really the work that she wants to put into the world as as, as herself you know um and so it was interesting to me to to explore that you know explore art making in this more contemporary world where everything has been like our attention is so like prismatically split all the time. Um, and that, you know, that, that fits in with the idea of this multiverse time loop situation where we're always being drawn in all of these different directions. And as soon as you point your head one way, it's like all of the other worlds that you have been interested in can kind of disappear. Um, and that can be for the good and for the ill. Yeah. So I, I was interested in bringing those themes of, of identity and personhood and, art making into this world that, that we and in, indeed I inhabit all the time where the internet is such a huge part of how we experience everything. We're talking with Adrian Selt, author of End of the World House. And we're going to take a little bit of a break. And when we come back, Adrian is going to give us some reading recommendations. <music> Welcome back to Blind Date with a Book. Adrian. as you know, we often give our guests suggestions based on dating app questions. And I know you came with a few books of your own to enthusiastically recommend. Um, they're not through the filtered through the algorithm of, of dating app <laughs> questions, just um, something that you really enjoy. What is top of mind for you right now? What are you what have you been most excited to read lately? Um so I just finished Antoine Wilson's new book, Mouth to Mouth, and Ooh. I loved it because it's so um, so focused. And I'm always really impressed by novels that are able to take a very singular concept and just see them through in this like with this crystalline precision. Another example of that is The Fifth Child by Doris Lessing, which I just I've read a bunch of times and I am really disturbed by and adore. Um, and I also recently read The Makioka Sisters for the first time by Jun- mm-hmm. Junichiro Tanizaki. And that book is so modern and so funny and so weird and does such a great job with the, um, with like the God's eye view that I just, I can't, could not, I can't stop thinking about it. I love it so much. And that's a strong recommendation. Um, I love that you've chosen really different books too. Um, oh, yeah. Sisters is really like a really uh, doorstopper of a novel. Oh yeah, um, it's like the opposite of mouth to mouth. <laughs> yes, it's the opposite of mouth to mouth. For people who might not be familiar with um, either novel, could you tell us a little bit about what the Makioka Sisters uh, is about? Yeah, the Makioka Sisters is, like you said, it's a doorstopper. It's a sort of family saga of three Japanese sisters in post-war Japan struggling between um, their... They they were sort of raised with uh, traditional values, and now they're struggling to bring their family and maintain its its dignity and its place in the world um, in an increasingly contemporary modern society. And... So they have it's a bunch of interpersonal conflicts and a bunch of conflicts between tradition and modernity, um, and it's just and, and it's just like exquisitely characters space to breathe and just live, and it just feels very real and alive. And it's such it's such a pleasure, like a warm bath of a novel to immerse yourself in. And it just and the end that the, the final line is not what you would expect and is hilarious and wonderful and ideal. (laughs) 
Oh, I love that. I have yet to read it. There was a copy of it on the sort of the half off shelf book in my local bookstore and I didn't get it, which I, and then it was gone and I like immediately regretted it. it. Um, And uh, you also recommended Antoine Wilson's Mouth to Mouth, which is a completely different book. It's brand new. And what is that book about? That book is about um, two, like, they wouldn't even really, I wouldn't call them friends. These two men meet in an airport um, during a long layover, and they knew each other in college. And one of them recounts a story to the other of saving a man's life um, and how that brings him how that changes his life and how he changes his life as a result of it and brings him into this sort of sinister art world. And it's, like I said, it's just, it's very precise and focused and just really fast. You can read it in like a day. And now that I think about it, like the fact that I'm, that all of my suggestions, the other suggestion I had was In the Eye of the Wild by Nastasia Martin, which is yeah. about, it's it's also new. It was a New York Review of Books uh, pick that came out last year I think end of last year hmm. and it's she's um, a French anthropologist and she was attacked by a bear in Siberia and it's this really philosophical treatise about going back to that moment like she she views herself or was viewed by the people that she was working with in Siberia as being like part there even before the attack. And so there's this sense of inevitability and like interchange between her and the bear. And it's just so unusual and weird. And the fact that I love all of these books and want to, and want to recommend them all with equal sincerity is like a testament to the fact that I love all kinds of books. And that's also why I write different kinds of books. Like every, every, all of Mm. my books have been different to greater or lesser degrees. And I just love how varied the, the book world can be and how it can just you know give you so many different things that you need yes uh, well one thing I've always wanted to ask you about your reading habits which I know from chatting with you online is that you will sometimes read uh, Russian classics in Russian could you talk a little bit about why you decide to tackle books in that way and also how you learn the language yeah, well, I studied Russian in college, um, and I studied abroad in St. Petersburg. So I try to keep my hand in, I guess. I don't really have anyone to talk to on <laughs> a regular basis, but I do sing a little Russian song from the cartoon Cheboroshka to my dog when we're on walks. <laughs> the first time I ever did that was not that long ago um, when a public space and you and Lee did the, the sort of group reading of War and Peace mm-hmm. as So I joined in for the Tolstoy Together reading, and as I was reading the copy that I had on hand, it's this old, you know, cloth-bound book that I think I bought in a thrift store in high school or something. And I just, I bought it at a time when I was very casual about the relationship between a a book and its translator, and I, I think I just had never really thought through then what it meant for a book to be translated, like the fact that that is not the book that the author wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, and since then, of course, I've you know studied a lot of language, and I've become a writer, and I I think about it all the time. I think it's very seriously about translation and that transformation, um, and the like the very deep relationship that a translator has with a book. It's a translation from like 1945 or something like that. It makes decisions that I don't think a contemporary translator necessarily would in terms of how it brings American it like Americanizes certain mm. elements of the book. Mm-hmm. And so I just, I was like, why don't I get a Russian copy so I can compare? And it, it, it I, I thought it would be really hard, but I found it really, it, it, like I got into the flow pretty quickly, actually. And I would just keep Google Translate on my phone as part of my reading. So I would be able to compare and contrast. And there were some times when, like there were entire passages that were just cut out. <laughs> and I was like, why, why, <laughs> why is this happening? <laughs> Um, yes, yeah, so I can remember you documenting this on Twitter, kind of pointing out the differences that you found. Yeah, and it became a real uh, sort of party, <laughs> a little like <laughs> quiet uh, extra room that for, for people who wanted to discuss the different translations. And there were other people who were reading it in Russian as well. And that, that was really like a, became a fun dimension of it for me and really, really satisfying. And so I realized, I'm actually doing that with The Idiot right now. 
Uh, Dostoevsky's The Idiot, not Elif Bachman's The Idiot, although I love that book too. Me too. It's um, traumatic to read. <laughs> oh, so traumatic, but so good. I'm really looking forward to her, to the sequel that's coming out this year. Like really yes, soon. either or, very soon. Um, but so I started re- rereading The Idiot um, because I wanted to generally, and because it is sort of a little bit of research, like quiet research for a book that I'm thinking about now. Um, and I, I had realized as I was reading War and Peace that if I just put like a little bit more effort into it, I could have been doing a translation of War and Peace as I went <laughs> because I was, you know, I was making notes. I was like noting down how I might have translated a phrase. I was sort of retranslating things back into Russian or like conversing with the book in Russian in my mind. And so that's what I'm trying to do. I'm reading The Idiot just straightforwardly in translation, but I'm also going back and very, very slowly doing my own translation of it, which I don't have any plans for, for it. It's sort of more of a like project of the heart than anything else, but it's it's fun so far. And it's like a nice it's a nice thing to do. Kind of like drawing those um, drawing those pictures like illustrations from end of the world house this is another way to like be creatively engaged in 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 a way that is slightly different but still related to to writing and uh literature you know my well my own literature it's obviously very related to literature (laughs) yes i love that and you know you heard it here first we could have an adrian sell uh translation of a major russian classic to close out the episode i thought we could maybe do a little lightning round of the dating app questions that that we stole from online questionnaires um and see what they might reveal about your own tastes are you feeling up for that yeah let's do it okay well you mentioned um earlier that birdie is an art snob what kind of snob are you also an art snob. Also an art snob. <laughs> this is something that you totally like gave to Bernie from yourself. Yeah, I think that she she and I come at it a little bit differently. I, I guess I'm probably more of a book and a word snob than just an art snob. Like I I love language and so I tend to be more precise and pedantic than maybe everybody would be. Like I, you know, I'm also like a pronunciation snob, even though it's not as though I don't mispronounce things on the regular. But I remember I was having dinner with some friends once and one of my friends bought a, brought a bottle of Cote and she kept calling it Cote Sturone. And this is like a lovely, brilliant person. <laughs> I can't believe I'm being such a bitch to on a podcast now. But I did it in real life. And it's really meant to be more of me being a bitch to me. Because after like a half an hour, I finally just quietly said Cote <laughs> and, and with like, the French accent, amazing. <laughs> yeah, everyone was like, "What?" And I was like, "There's you don't say the s." <laughs> and then I was so, I was so ashamed, uh, but I couldn't stop myself. So there you go. Okay, next question. If you could give an on-the-spot TED talk about anything, what would it be? Probably translation. I'm really interested in translation and how it can branch you you can branch out your thinking about literary translation into just about anything because you, really anything you read is being translated into your own mind um, and every conversation we have we're trying to translate our way of thinking to another person's way of thinking to make mm. what we are saying and thinking meaningful to them um, so that I, I could I could talk extemporaneously about about literary translation and it's um, many tentacled relationships to the rest of our lives uh, for, for, for a pretty long time. <laughs> okay, next question. Uh, what's the TV show or movie you're most excited to introduce people to? Ooh, I mean, lately, Severance. I have been oh, watching yes. Severance and I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen the end. Have you watched all of the episodes? I have watched all of the episodes. I don't want to say anything to you about it now. Okay. <laughs> I can't wait for you to watch the finale. <laughs> I really can't wait. The other show that I am obsessed with is Yellow Jackets because uh-huh. it, it not only is it absolutely gruesome, um, but it 
just, it makes me so nostalgic for the 90s, which is so weird because it's all about cannibalism <laughs> <laughs> and like utter violence and like giving yourself an abortion with a bra strap, like a, a underwire bra. Like it's so traumatic. But I just found it, like as I watched it, it made me feel really, it just made me feel so much. And I, I loved that about it. Although somebody somewhere which is a completely different like almost opposite show Ugh. tonally just made me feel happy to be middle-aged so mm. there's yet again so many things art can provide you with yes that's the somebody somewhere is truly the show of my heart really does a nice job of explaining what it's like to grow up in a, in a rural place to be the weirdo in a rural place and then to come back to that place as an adult it, it just captures that experience so well people's relationship to art in that show is so pure like it's not very much based in ambition the, their love of music and like sh sharing and like drag is all like performative in the moment and it, it's all about sharing it with one another and like being alive with within the art that they're making in that exact second of in time and I just I, I love that it's so hard to to access that with like the internet everywhere and just like it's always possible to be ambitious about something that you're doing but it doesn't it's not always the best part it's usually not last but not least is there an indie bookstore that you'd love to shout out today well i would love to shout out antigone books for anyone in tucson arizona because it's it's here they are they are my friends and the the current owners of antigone books took it over they were booksellers there and then when the they they put together a proposal to buy it from the previous owners so and and they did it and they like their it was like their second or third year own, owning the store that the pandemic took over and they had to completely change their business model and just you know go through the same struggle that so many businesses have had to do pivoting throughout the pandemic and i'm so impressed that they're still there <laughs> and i love them Oh, that's wonderful. Well, we will link to Antigone books in our show notes, as well as provide all of your recommendations for other people to check out. Adrienne, thank you so much for joining us on Blind Date with a book today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Blind Date with a book. Our show is produced and co-hosted by Kristen Evans, Rachel Mans McKenney, and Elena Nicolau. Our showrunner is Rachel Mance McKenney, and our sound editor is Elena Nicolau. Kristen Evans handles web design and newsletter production. Our theme music was written by Alex Bozzi, and our logo was designed by Chelsea Hill. If you like today's show, please subscribe, rate, and review Blind Date with a Book on Apple Podcasts. Ratings make it even easier for other listeners to find us and join the fun. We'll be back in two weeks with a new guest and more books to recommend. Until then, we hope you're falling for the next book on your TBR pile, whatever it might be. Ugh, your answers are so amazing. I will cut this out, but I love them. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free to leave the compliments in. Uh, maybe we'll do an outtake. <laughs> <laughs>